Welcome to Level with Emily Reese. This is music by Larry Goldings for a mini-series called Self-Made, inspired by the life of Madam C.J. Walker. Larry, okay, Larry, is a composer for film and TV. On occasion, I'll get offered the chance to interview composers that don't write music for games. Normally, I pass on those opportunities. Larry, though, is also a jazz pianist and organist. And that's how I knew the name Larry Goldings. I did not want to pass up that opportunity because I've admired Larry's playing for years. So while we do spend time talking about the music he wrote for Self Made, we also talk about things like what it's like to play the Hammond B3 organ as opposed to the piano, who Larry's influences are. We talk about a couple of the trios that he plays with and a few different albums that he's released over the years. The playlist for this episode is extensive and you can find it on our Patreon page. One last thing, I forgot to do something really important before speaking with Larry Goldings. I forgot to turn on the correct microphone. So you'll hear my voice, uh, what it sounds like if I record myself through my earbuds. Anyway, here is Larry talking about shifting from a touring musician to a composer for film and TV. I've been working on changing my focus from touring which is what I do mostly. Uh, well, not, not right now, obviously, but that's really always been my my bread and butter. Uh, but after, uh, since moving to Los Angeles, which was in 2001, there's been a sort of slow and steady attempt to, to break into to more film and television. Um, and so finally, uh, well, in 2000, what was it? 2000. I can't remember. I did my first, uh, it was a small film, but it was a feature film uh, by Jeff Garland, the comedian from Curb Your Enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. Um, that was called Dealing with Idiots. Not a lot of people saw it, but it was a decent film and it was a great foot in the door. But sort of since then, I, you know, I've, I, I've been all, you know, trying to to um, move on the momentum of that. But, you know, touring it kind of uh, keeps coming into play and it's, it's work that I want to do. So, and I think it's, it's the, as the old cliche goes, I mean, uh, timing is, is everything. And I think um, what happened was I through an interesting series of events that had to do with a few people that knew other people that knew other people um, at Warner brothers. And, you know, and I had been on Warner brothers actually years ago, my, I'd made three records in the nineties for Warner brothers. And so it's interesting to be back with them in, in this, in this uh, context. But so I was able to get long story short, I was able to get a, an interview over there and they, and they, and they were still looking for trying to figure out the composer. Um, I don't think they knew much about me other than what I, what they read about, my jazz background and about some of the film stuff that I had done, but it certainly did help. It seemed uh, uh, encourage them to know that I was well versed in jazz. Not that this was a movie about jazz, but it's certain. But it, you know, of course, takes place in the very early jazz era.
And I think that was attractive to them. And um, what they wanted was a what they called a, a, a an oral, mood, a musical mood board, an oral mood board. They just wanted me to come up with whatever I could come up with in, in two or three days, um, based on the the screenplay, the script that they gave me for the first episode. And um, and I went right ahead and I did that, and not really knowing what they wanted, but getting some glimpses of what they were hoping for in terms of the feel and the influences. I don't think it didn't seem like they wanted a um, jazz score per se. Um, so that was the first sort of interesting challenge for me to, to deal with in, in terms of how do I, how do I deal with the jazz influence? Um, how do I use it within the dramatic score and so forth? And so in this mood board, I gave them some things, uh, sort of a wide range of, of things that went from things that were that were more early jazzish to things that were not, but had references to jazz in some way, either through instrumentation or jazz harmony. And they really liked it. They thought that the overview that I gave them had enough in it, I guess, to, to give them confidence that that I was the right guy, I guess. So, <laughs> so then I went on tour and not knowing what was going to come of that meeting. And then they wanted a, a, a Skype meeting while I was on tour to tell me, you know, they really dug it and let's, let's go for it. So that's how that happened. And pretty immediately they were, as these things go, when there when there are scenes that have bands in them and they need to cast those scenes one of the first things they need often before any score is written is, oh, you know, can you put these sessions together of what these bands would be playing in, you know, in, season, in, in episode two and episode three, you know, um, because they need to know exactly what to cast, you know, for that stuff. So that was the first thing I did for them. I did two, three or four of those. And that was extremely fun because I got to sort of, seek out of course i know a lot of jazz musicians in town <laughs> but the people who are uh excel in early jazz like real a trumpet player who really knows how to play authentically if he were in 1915 or 1920 mm -hmm. um i had to actually dig that up a little bit and got some great recommendations particularly for this uh, guy named dan weinstein who i did not know and he's Really, that's his thing. He, he plays trombone, he plays trumpet, trombone, tuba, and violin. extremely uh, ended up being extremely important in the sound of the film not only in the those scenes that I described but utilizing his sound in the score um, and other people like that the drummer Jay Bellrose who's well known in Los Angeles and oh, yeah. beyond he he really was helpful in telling me what drums what you would see a drummer playing in 1950 <laughs> 
so there was some really interesting uh, research-oriented things that I did just to really make that stuff authentic in terms of the instrumentation, mm -hmm. the arrangements of the songs that the very good music supervisor was uh, named Morgan Rhodes was putting together. You know, she would she would put a bunch of licensed, I mean, you know, potentially licensed songs in the mix for producers to hear and then those would be decided and then they would say Larry can you put some kind of band together and an arrangement of this song which is you know more or less from the era so that's so all that gave them I think some confidence you know a lot of confidence in in me and that was the early stuff I did and then once I started and then they started sending me dailies of, of the shoots which I think is pretty rare for a composer to see dailies yeah. Uh, usually, you see at least a, just a, raw, a good raw first cut, but this was just a real raw take after take after take of the same scene, and I thought it was absolutely fascinating, and also gave me a, a feeling early on before I was really writing to picture um, of what it was going to look like, of the very high quality of, of the performances and stuff like that. So that was a good head start for me to just get my get get my mind in it, get get the feeling of the overall look and feel of it. So um, yeah, that's how that's how that's all that all began. I did want to ask you about some of the players because, of course, a lot of times composers and media are using samples and, and that's all great. There's such good samples now that I don't have a feeling about that one way or the other. But hearing some of the performances, I was like, yeah, there's no way. Those are real players. <laughs> so like yeah, the clarinet, too, stuff like that, you know. Oh, yeah. Every time you heard, certainly in the scenes where there are bands playing, those that was an actual band that I was, except for one tune I was always in. I hired, a, I hired for a real fast stride piano piece. I hired a friend of mine, um, Chris Dawson, who's again, he's a guy who does that. He does it much better than I do, uh, particularly at a high, fast tempo. And I just didn't really want to have to hear my half-assed version of fast stride piano because ultimately it's it's you know it's a collaborative effort you want you want the best possible outcome and 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 as a composer i think you're also sometimes acting as a producer too in order you know you find the right people to yeah. to play to play the, the music that you're, that you're putting together so but for the most part it was always me playing piano but Really key players were um, Dan Weinstein, as I as I mentioned. Um, Max Brick, a young uh, clarinet player, was on some of it, and um, a guy named uh, Jeff Nudell was another um, clarinet player. Jay Bellarose was the drummer on all of the pre-record stuff, except uh, let's see, yes, and Anthony Wilson was on guitar on that stuff when I had guitar. So it was fantastic players 
that I knew either could really go to that that old style authentically or or there were people who mainly did that um mm-hmm. oh uh josh welch's an excellent local trumpet player did some stuff on the score um another friend of mine john snyder who's actually on a few of my records um yeah. he's in new york and the scrapper scrapper yeah <laughs> scrapper did some from from new york and sent it to me i had people sending me sending me things from their home studios you know but it wasn't in the end a, a very uh it was a hybrid of of midi i mean none of the pre-record yeah. stuff was all all that stuff was acoustic and, and people but for the score it was kind of a a hybrid of midi sounds and and real people and even some of the real people like i took josh Welchos, he came over one day and I just I sampled him. I sampled a bunch of whole notes from him, and um, I because I wanted sort of just another way in, to, like texturally for some of the for some of the cues. And so I was able to use some things like that, some eerie kind of pads that were made up of real people's playing, you know, um, and that gave it some you know some personality. And they, from the beginning, they had no intention of wanting this to be any kind of orchestral score so i knew that but i there were there are orchestral elements and whenever you hear that those, those are those mm-hmm. are sampled strings mm-hmm. or sample or yeah usually it's strings but i'm also really interested in sounds that aren't necessarily you know like i make samples that i mess with mess with i'll take a whatever it is i'll take a saxophone and just kind of mess with it so you're getting the texture of it but but it's not hitting you over a head over the head that this is a jazz instrument you know or this is this so whatever jazz i wanted to sneak into the score i tried to do in a sort of under underhanded ways um because they wanted what they wanted it to be overall a more contemporary sound mm-hmm. so within that i just wanted to sort of sneak in these elements of jazz without it being overtly jazz <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about, um, you know, the decision making behind when to put in some some music and when when to not. Are, were you making some of those decisions, Larry, or were those largely made up to the uh, producers or um, audio director? Those usually stem. Those decisions start at what they call a spotting session. You know, where the composer. And in movies, it's usually a director, but in television, I'm realizing it's it's, it's usually a small group of main producers. Um, so it's 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 me, my music editor, um, maybe my assistant, um, and then the producers. We we watch whatever is the most current edit uh, of that episode, and. What already they've dropped in, for instance, previous to the first, uh, to, to the spotting session for the first episode, they've already made some decisions or are in the process of making decisions of like some licensed music that they want, you know, because as you noticed, of course, there's a big presence of 
uh, female-dominated, uh, you know, uh, vocal contemporary things, mm-hmm. which was part of their concept. They wanted that, that that to be sort of a thread. So those are maybe already in there or in there tentatively because they're still working on whether they're going to be able to buy those licenses and things like that. And then early on, the editor... The editor, editor, not the music editor, is uh, has had been calling me or emailing me. Hey, do you have anything that I can, any early ideas or anything at all that I can put in here that are, you think might be in the ballpark because it really helps me to edit, or at least that's how it happened in this situation. And, um, so by the time you get to the spotting session, the editor has dropped music in, and some of and some of it is mine, some of it is not mine, some of it the music editor has been asked to find temp music from other films to put in there that he thinks might might be just at least a, a, a good placeholder. Um, then, as that's running down, we stop and start because the producers will say, okay, can we stop and talk about this? I really like this cue, you know, or I really like this, is this a temp? And yes, it's a temp. So that's the first hint as to you know, the, the producers will as best as they can, and they did it pretty well, having not really, any of them really having a heavy music you know, knowledge, um, maybe some more the, than others. They try to describe really what they want to be feeling, want to be getting from this scene musically. Or, um, as in the case of the first episode, I think everybody had this sort of natural sort of jitters in terms of is this good enough? Do we need music everywhere? You know, <laughs> yeah. because, because we're, we're not totally confident that this scene is working or this cut is working. So maybe slap some music in there. So that's, I think also a typical thing that um, to their credit, once it was filled up with, I think too much music, um, the next edit had a lot less and had the next uh, spotting session we were saying they were saying, you know, we realized that this scene is so good that we, we don't really need music here. So things like that's a, that's a that's a process, and sometimes the way to go about it is to, you know, put more in than than you think is needed, and then you start sort of shaving it away. job of the music editor um, in those meetings is very important because that person has been through a lot of these meetings and they he really he or she really knows how to sometimes interpret some of the things that they're saying that are kind of musical directions but they can only say it in their language and so after the meeting he's taking he's taking copious notes and he's and so we have a meeting and he says okay think what they're what they really want here what they're saying here is they love this cue and they you know they want to use this every time this kind of thing happens or this character you know so he's helping in getting me to understand what they want um then you have kind of a map of you have a very specific map of every cue, every every moment where they're saying they want something, uh, every moment where they say they don't need it because they're going to either not have music or they're going to have a, dro- a needle drop. You know, they're going to mm. they're going to license something. Yep. 
So then you have this map and you have a deadline and you and the music editor, thank God for him, his name name is uh, Stephen Lotwitz. He kind of has, a, again, because of his experience, he says, why don't you get started on this? Because this seems to be really important to them, you know? So there's a lot of that. There's a lot of just trying to make the right move so so the filmmakers are continually feeling like we're moving forward and and um, that they've gained your trust and that that the sound and the direction you've you've got is aligned with theirs. But decisions like that, whether there should be music or not in a particular scene, that can go that, those can be decided as late as the day that the three or four days that they're actually mixing the music into the into the film you know because um it's just called the dub um you go to that dub and you're pretty much there and the producers come in and maybe there's a cue that comes up and they go wait a minute um maybe we didn't hear this one or uh you know so this can be also you have to be really flexible you know Mm -hmm. and i have to say that despite the fact that Oftentimes, producers and directors can't speak in a musical language. They're very, very close to the to the story, to this to the project. They right. they've been living with it for maybe a decade, you know. So you really do have to listen to the kind of things that they're talking about emotionally, you know, about about what they want to get from this, and that's sometimes your your real key is just to really kind of try to put yourself into their place in terms of what what they've always been hoping for you know for this scene you know because you 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 came along composer always comes along at the very end you know <laughs> yeah and i had learned even though my credits had been pretty limited before that i had learned that lesson uh, when i went to the sundance um there's this wonderful thing you might have heard of called the sundance composers lab yeah yeah, so I had done, I had been invited to do that twice, once in the documentary one and once in the feature film. And I have to say that was so incredibly educational. Oh, and in that particular Sundance thing, actually, they that year they really wanted the, this was interesting, they wanted the sound effects department and the composer department to spend some time with each other so that we knew what they were up to. And they and they knew. Oh, and not only that, but the point of the the real point of the lab was so that the director can really gain some knowledge about what the composer does, you know, sure. and vice vice versa. So I think that was a really good gave me a good head start in terms of just knowing the lay of the land, you know. Did you always want to be a be a composer in that way, Larry? I mean, I know that. I mean, you you had a career. You have a career. So I'm curious yeah. when, how long you've wanted or had interest in in this side of it. I think from the I think from the moment I from the time I started be doing more recording sessions, like in, in the when I was living in New York mm-hmm. and seeing these kind of. Uh, other these collaborative processes that um, 
uh, or like writing with people, singer, you know, singer songwriters or collaborating with people. I just realized the well, and also I've always loved films, you know, definitely. So from, as a kid, I was picking up the theme to various John Williams movies and things like that, and I was very moved by the power of of music and film. Um, and but I, I'd say that my my interest in it escalated when we decided to move to LA. Um, which was not specifically to do that, but it was it was one of my goals because by that time I had already <laughs> I had a, we had I had a family and I was already thinking, boy, I, can I keep this up six months out of the year? I'm going on the road, yeah. um, so that was a big factor. And the move to LA was in part because I had a friend who was doing film and TV who had moved there and who was very helpful when I, when I moved, when I, when we moved here. And I thought, well, you know, that's, I'm open to it. Maybe, maybe it won't agree with me. Maybe it'll stress me out. Maybe I'm not right for it, but I had an inkling that it was going to be interesting to me. So, and, and then I started playing on more films and, and TV, which got me even closer to that world mm-hmm. and some of the people in that world. And, particularly this friend I was talking about, Chad Fisher, he does a lot of TV. And so I got to see very closely his day-to-day thing in that world and saw him stressed out a lot. And, <laughs> um, but I also saw the satisfaction of, of, of the end result of these things, you know, mm-hmm. um, wasn't sure if I could handle the pressure that, that I saw these people dealing with. And actually, in the middle of this process in self-made, I wasn't so sure I was ready for the pressure. But that was before I had sort of my team, which is like an assistant who isn't even here necessarily in my studio. He's in his own home studio, but he can do a lot for me in terms of organizing things for me. And let alone not really writing, although he did a little bit of writing, but he did mostly was writing based on things that I had already written and just needed to be kind of organized and, and shifted around for another scene and things like that. But he, he is a writer and there were a few times when I was just too busy to finish a particular thing. And I said, can you give a crack at this? And, and that relationship was more evolved with, with my friend, Abe Rounds, who, who, who co-wrote some of the, pretty much all of the sort of backbeat-ish type of um, cues in there. Oh, cool. Um, the in, like the instrumental things that are like a mesh of of, je- of, of old jazz and backbeat. That was my friend uh, Abe Browns, who's a wonderful drummer and producer. He works with Michelle Madeguecello, and he's just great with, with beats and production. So he and I did those type of cues together, and that was uh, also ended up when I when I figured out that maybe that was a good other sort of hybrid sound, based on the fact that they were 
needle dropping a lot of contemporary things. Mm-hmm. Um, they really dug that. They thought, oh, that's yeah, that's you know. I think they, they think I think that it, we all felt that that was a good way to tie in all the different musical threads that, that, that were going through the, the film. Mm-hmm. But no, I love I I, I I love a great score. I'm always amazed by someone who can pull off an effective score, whether it's subtle, weird involved i mean i like every every type as long as it works you know yeah yeah everything from a ridiculously orchestrated and beautiful layered john williams score to a very subtle i don't know it was a good example i mean someone like um newman not randy but uh thomas thomas you know because one of the things I learned at Sundance, and one of the things I learned in, as a studio musician in general, is that less is almost always more, you know. Yeah. And particularly with with an image, because you've you've got to remember that it's not about you and your and, your, <laughs> and, and what you're trying to say as a musician at that point, and mm-hmm. you know, because you're you're serving a story, you're you're serving the action, you're competing with other sound. You're competing with just the sonorities and the pictures of the of the actors talking. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done. You know, it's um, you, you you want to be able to put some some of your own personality into it, and yet sometimes the cue calls for something so subtle, subtle and simple. So when it's that, then your challenge is, what can I do that's sonically just sort of piques your interest but doesn't get in the way. know a lot about jazz I I'm pretty sure you know a lot about classical music as well um, mm-hmm. how much about early early jazz did you know because 1910 they're really I mean that was a weird I mean I don't mean weird in a pejorative way by any means but that was a big transition time so I mean yeah. how, how, how much of that were you already like super dialed in with and how much did you have to be like mm, I guess there aren't trap sets in 1910 yeah right well the closest to what I could really who I could really tell you about, you know, from that era is, is well, aside from Joplin, which which is, um, you know, ragtime, and then something I didn't really play, but of course I love, I love it. Yeah. Um, I mean, Louis Armstrong would be the closest, and that's that's a little bit later. Yeah. So, and also there's there's very, you know, there's very little recorded uh, at, at around, you know, between before 1920. So. Initially, I was basing it off what I knew about Louis Armstrong, and then, in terms of, uh, ex- with, with the exception of piano playing, that might have preceded that um, stride piano, ragtime piano, stuff mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. In terms of really zeroing in and, and figuring out, like, okay, what would the instrumentation be and things like that? I was looking at photographs. I was looking at like, there's a couple photographs of Buddy Bolden's band. Yeah. And I was curious about, did he have banjo? Did he have guitar? 
you have tuba, did he have bass? And of course, you can't always trust either a photograph or a recording in terms of what was really authentic, because in recordings, they often use things that were only there because they could cut through. Right, right. Um, Or they lacked things that normally would be in a live situation because they wouldn't cut through, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, So that can be... That can be tricky. But what I came up with was sort of like a, an overview that I thought was authentic enough. You know, like I could use tuba or I could use bass. I could use acoustic guitar or I could, or I could use um, banjo. All those things existed. But uh, Jay Bellarose sent me this fascinating little mini documentary about early drums and uh, that was made by Vic, the Vic Verth Company. And that spelled out everything I needed to know about what a drum set would look like. Well, not a drum set, because they didn't even call it that. I mean, there was no drum hardware or anything like that. So that was really, really... And he, this guy, this young guy, who's just a fanatic about this stuff. He's just basically showing off all these different instruments that were typically used at that time. And it turns out that Jay Bellarose himself is a collector of all that stuff. And and I knew that he would be... (laughs) you know, the perfect person to hire for those, yeah. for those sessions. So, so in the jazz stuff that you hear on there, you hear Jay playing, you know, a huge bass drum and some of those clickety clack, um, what were they called? What, what, what's explained in that documentary is that a lot of what jazz player or early jazz players were putting together as their little combination of instruments had to do with what immigrants were bringing in. You had Turkey and China bringing in cymbals. You had the Irish bringing in uh, this, what's it called? Some kind of pitched, well, it wasn't really pitched. It was just this really high, you hear it on Louis Armstrong records. You know, it's like a, and it's just this clackety clack thing that, again, I think the reason why they were playing it was because it could cut through the microphones. Yeah. And um, that was some kind of, um, that was an Irish thing but anyway so he had all these instruments brought them to the studio and that was basically his setup I think just something like that even though even if it's those kinds of details even if they're not consciously acknowledged by your layperson I think just makes it better, you know, mm-hmm. um, and it definitely makes the musicians happy because you know we hate when they get that stuff wrong in, in music stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I was really psyched to be in the position to try to get that right. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, it pays yeah. off. It really does pay off, especially in the the texture. Really pays off. Um, you've yeah. mentioned Jay Bella Rose a couple times, and you guys have done an album together that's fantastic. That live from the front room or music right. from the front. Yeah. Which which is it? Yeah, I think it's music. Music yeah. from the front. That record is amazing. Do you have any interest in t- talking to me about that album? <laughs> I do. In fact, I'm dying to put it on, on put it out on LP because I think it's a perfect LP record. Nice. Yeah. Um, perfect length too. I think it's only like 35 minutes or something.
Well, that was culled from a series of late night hangs that we were having at Jay's house, where his uh, girlfriend, great bass player, uh, Jen Condos, was just taping from another room on Pro Tools, not really knowing quite what she was doing. And we were having whiskey and, you know, th those were those were over the course of months of just late night recording and hanging out. And then we realized, hey, we might have something here that we could we could put out. And it was all all, you know, in one room. And somehow the way it came out sounds like an old like it's recorded like a like a live Eddie Harris record or something. It just yeah. sounds good. So basically that was really off the cuff. We had a list of tunes and we were just not even planning to make a record. And then I was sitting there with all this stuff and I was going through it and I said, okay, we have at least six or seven things that we could. And then we got a quote unquote mix, although there wasn't a whole lot of mixing you could do since we were all in the same space. Yeah. Um, but, but Sheldon Gomberg did a wonderful job actually making it sound great. And then, um, Never came out physically. I, it was just a digital release, but I get I get emails saying, "Can you please put this out as a uh, as an LP?" Producer Larry Klein. Larry, shortly after I moved to LA, called me for the Madeline Peru record, uh, okay. Careless, Careless Love, which was her sort of big first record. And that, and I ended up, we as a group ended up doing many of her subsequent ones, as well as many of Larry's subsequent other artists' records. So we became sort of Larry's little trio, a little house band for his projects, for a series of records, including Tracy Chapman and uh, Curtis Steigers, and, uh, lots of stuff. And um, so we became pretty tight, and we, we very early on knew that we wanted to do something as a trio, because we just had a great, a great time playing together. refreshing to me too because it wasn't really a jay isn't you know and by his own, own admit, a, a admission to probably say he isn't a jazz drummer per se but he is someone who's actually he sounds super authentic on this stuff and, and can play authentically in, in, a, in a jazz context yeah. but but it's not really what he does and he's really just more of a um just an extremely supportive, tasteful player who can kind of play his own thing 
but make it sound like it's an authentic way of approaching a style. <laughs> I don't know. That's incredible. Of, yeah, he's just very musical. He comes more out of maybe someone like, well, he comes from, I mean, he studies a lot of old drummers like Baby Dodds and all that kind of stuff. That's partly because he loves collecting all those old sock symbols and stuff like that. But <laughs> but he's also like a kind of a Jim Keltner type of thinker. He's very organic. He can play in, in a pop context, but sound very organic. And um, he's always, and that's and part of it is the choice of instruments he uses. He does use a lot of old drums that have a lot of warmth and, and um, personality. That group also allows me to, to dive into an eclectic, a really eclectic choice of music, too. Everybody's open-minded and Everybody played with a lot of singer-songwriters and on a lot of films, and they're just like me. They they're, they're, they just if it's something that they like, they want to be involved. It doesn't really matter so much that you're able to name the genre. And yeah, that's sort of that's sort of where I'm at these days. I mean, I was also getting kind of tired of always being labeled an organ player, um, mm. and because I've been writing or composing in some way for years and years and it's kind of nice to be out there as a composer or songwriter now a little bit more you know mm -hmm, as, mm -hmm. as, part, as part of my as part of my makeup yeah and let's be clear you're talking about the Hammond B3 not a church organ not a church organ I wouldn't yeah. know what to do with a church organ <laughs> yeah. well a Hammond I mean, has I'd pedals like yes but I'm not a great pedal player actually I mean I'm okay um, church you can you can't get away with not <laughs> right Right, but talk, if you will, I know you want to get away from being labeled an organ player, but I like to, you know, try and teach a thing or two while we're doing this. And, I mean, there is a unique style of playing to the B3 where a lot of times there isn't even a bass player. You're the bass player, right? Right, exactly. Yes. Most, most of the time, in a jazz context, yes. Yeah, and that's a unique way to play a keyboard. It is, and it's something that I think I was naturally going that direction because... Uh, in the early days of, of playing piano, which was my, you know, my first instrument, I I was gravitating towards playing bass lines, you know, and I think that was because my first one of my first influences was Dave McKenna. slightly un, unsung um, piano yeah. player. Yeah. Who we, I used to hear a little bit in New England. I grew up in, in, in near Boston. So, um, and I thought, oh, well, that's that's amazing. And that's 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 how you play solo. And when you're playing solo, you, you walk your own bass lines, you know. Uh. Um, so I was doing that for a while. And in fact, this the same guy I mentioned, Chad Fisher, who's now a successful TV writer, drummer, etc. He was my friend from when we were 12 and he and I used to play his mom's parties just the two of us he had on, on on their Steinway piano and I would put a synthesizer on the on the top and walk and walk bass lines 
Because we didn't know any, <laughs> neither of us knew any bass players. <laughs> so there's definitely a through line yeah. from those those days and sort of just getting comfortable with that idea, the idea of being sort of uh, self-contained in that way. Amazing, amazingly important role, uh-huh. you know. So I always dug that, and I always found myself listening to bass players on jazz records and on, on, on other kinds of records. I loved Jack Pistorius from an early yeah. age, things like that, because I could see how how much he could influence the music with his ideas just from the bass, you know. Um, so that naturally i think led i don't think i realized that that there was a connection there until later but that definitely influenced my later getting into the into the hammond mm-hmm. and and synthesize, playing synthesizers in general which i was doing from a from an early age was something that led me to the hammond because i think the hammond is sort of the first or the or even the pipe organ you could consider the first yeah synthesizer almost keith jarrett actually made a record on pipe organ where he he realized that if he put the stops midway, now what was it? If he if he plays the keys just midway down, yeah, he can bend the notes. <laughs> I think he was either doing that or he was putting the stops midway, and he was bang. so he was like approaching it like you know not you know well I don't necessarily have to play this the way someone would in sixteen hundred you know yeah so. There's a lot, so there's a lot of possibilities, and of course, there's a lot of possibilities orchestrally at the organ, and mm-hmm. I think that aspect of it is something that I love because I think I always loved the idea of orchestrating, even at the piano, you know, orchestrating at the piano, or and using synthesizers too as a way to to orchestrate things. <laughs> Some of the early records that I really liked, let's say Weather Report or things that were more sonically oriented, to me are very, can be very film-like to me. Oh yeah. So so, um, I wasn't always interested in in records that were all about improvising and blowing, you know, I was just as fascinated by records that, that, where the strength was sound and mood, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So all, all of you know, and sound and mood is pretty much what you're dealing with, you know, and melody, of course. Uh, but too much melody can get in the way sometimes in a film. So, yeah. um, so all those things, I think, influenced my uh, my love for film, and I love actors. I mean, I do my own version of quote unquote acting every once in a while with, with, with Hans Groiner. Groiner, yeah. <laughs> We don't have to. We don't have to say too much more about that. But um, 
But it is something that I admire. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'll go on a YouTube uh, thing for an hour just watching comedy or watching old comedy or yeah. um, behind the scenes things about how things are made. It's just to me, it's all it's all creative, and it's I think it, you can all take ideas. You can take ideas from all of it. I kind of I feel bad because I, I kind of feel like I interrupted you a little by saying but 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 you're such a good organ player and I don't mean to do that by any stretch but um, I'd like you to kind of continue with that thought where you were saying you know you're just a little not that you're over it because I, I know that's not the case no, but you're ready for no, something no. different well at least want to at least want to supplement it you know yeah. I, 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 oh, I mean believe me I uh, right, what are, where are we now? Right now, I would have been jumping off. The last month, I would have been out with my trio, you know, and I can't tell you how much I miss that and how difficult it is to not play live. Um, are you talking of Peter Bernstein and Bill Stewart? Yeah, Peter and Bill. Yeah, we had a, we had a, we were going to do a week at the Standard. We were going to do a whole bunch of stuff. We were going to record our next record. Oh, actually. wow. So this thing has made me realize how much I need that in my life, you know? I mean, yeah. as much as I, as much as, as lucky as I feel that I can make music and hopefully make a little bit of money while I'm sitting here at home making music, I mean, I can't live without the performing. It's just part of who I am, mm -hmm. you know? But in terms of that trio, I mean, I don't, that's the only group that I can really call my group i mean that is i have the i not to belittle the the thing with david and and uh jay and jay thank you yeah no worries <laughs> by forgetting their names i'm completely belittled <laughs> um you know with what's his name and what's his name but um no that's an that's a group that i really i would love to take on the road in fact i would love to I would love to get uh, a promoter involved in in that group because I think it's also kind of unique. But yeah. the trio with Peter and Bill, it's definitely been the place where I feel the most at home. You know, when I sit down at the organ, um, second to that would maybe be John Schofield's group, which I you know yeah. continue to do a lot of work with. But. Mm -hmm. um, but the organ thing—it's—it's got—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's 30 years we've been together. Wow. So um, we and we're really close, and um, we we're all waiting to get get out there again and, and record and and tour again. Um, but I've learned just so much about what you know my what my what is my voice and what am I trying to am I trying to do here and through that group and. And then, and then, you know, in terms of just organ playing in general, I mean, when that sort of accidentally really became more of my focus, and it was, I say accidentally because it just so happened that the, some of the first records that kind of people heard were records where I was playing organ. That would have been like Maceo Parker and John Schofield. And yeah. then by the time I made my first record as a leader, 
it was on Oregon uh, because I was on Mace. Uh, it was on the label that Maceo was on. Okay. And his his producer just basically approached me and said, "Hey, how about you make an Oregon record with your band?" And I said, "How about we we wait a couple of years until I'm a better organ player." Um, but we did it anyway, and next thing you know, I mean, that's sort of became my identity more as a piano player, which I'm very grateful for. Yeah. Uh, but it did come sort of unexpectedly and, you know, it came at a time where there was another a resurgence going on with Joey DiFrancesco. And mm-hmm. it's, it's one of those instruments that just, it's still, you just can't die. It's still, <laughs> still there. It, it's, it's present in so many different kinds of music. Yeah. Um, and it's still needed at least, Maybe it's not always the real thing when it's one is hearing on a record these days, but certainly the real Hammond is the only thing I want to play when I'm playing with my band. It's it's um, you know, it's a real instrument. It doesn't feel like a digital instrument, and it's because of the amount of genres that one needs the organ that's turned me on to a lot of different kinds of recording projects that I might not necessarily have been a part of. Sure. You know? Yeah. And, and I'm glad to be called for all these different things, um, whether it's funk or soul or pop or jazz or whatever it might be. And so that's opened a lot of doors, uh, uh, actually, work-wise and, and stuff like that. And But the people who have known me since the late 80s, early 90s still know me as a piano player, too, and, yeah. and still playing piano, and I... I you know, that group, for instance, you mentioned with Jay and David is certainly one that I want to get out there, partly so I can kind of once again, you know, make a statement on the piano. And of course, with James Taylor, I get to play a whole lot of piano. I mean, it's it's not... Yeah, it's not an improvising situation, but it it is. You know, we travel with his piano, and I love that because I always get to. We rarely get to play our own instruments when we're on the road, Mm. and that's fun because I get to jump around, do organ, do piano, do a little bit of do a little accordion, or uh, that's right, yeah, quote unquote (laughs) accordion. Well, see, the thing too is that you play the accordion very well idiosyncratically. You know what you know what I mean? It's like you know what accordion sounds like and you can play right. it like that. Yeah. You know, as long as it's just a right hand situation and it's not too fast, I feel like it's a similar type of emotive type of challenge that like with the organ, you know, with the mm-hmm. organ, you have volume pedal and you have stops, which help you with, which help you with expression. So it's the same thing with, you know, the bellows and the stops on the accordion are sort of the different the same same type of thing. It's there's there's uh, there's there's the possibility of breathing with the instrument, you know. Yeah. So I'm working on that and I'm I also very slowly working on the on the buttons, but I'm really lazy <laughs> with putting that together. I think you have to like start accordion when you're two. In lieu of 
this next record coming out, at least anytime in the near future, just so you and your listeners know, I've started a Patreon uh, page. And uh, you'll hear me talking about this a lot. Um, so there's three tiers that people can subscribe, and it's all sorts of goodies like educational things and Q&As with me and new music and director's commentary kind of things uh, on things that I've been on. And I think it's going to be really interesting for people who want to get a little bit more involved, you know, inside what I'm doing. So that's just patreon.com slash Larry Goldings. Is there anything else you'd like to say about self-made? Because um, that's, that is the reason that we talked in the first place. And, and again, just a show that sucked me in within the first five or six minutes of it. And uh, the music's great. Yeah, it was a wonderful experience. And I was really, it was really cool when this pandemic started. Um, this whole idea of putting the soundtrack out happened. And oh, nice. God, that was a really nice um, timing because it got me to concentrate on something positive and they let me just basically put it together pick the cues that i like i i either myself or abe and i extended some of the shorter kind of funky things that we had in there that were important cues just to make make it a you know more listenable mm-hmm. soundtrack record but i never in a million years would i have thought that i would put out a soundtrack record so this is <laughs> really exciting and it's out there on water tower music which is warner brothers and it is kind of, you know, it is kind of a cool mix of, of yep. early, jazz, early jazz, some instrumental hip hop, um, and, you know, I, I, I think it's a good listen. People should check it out and, um, and, and watch, watch the series. It's a fascinating telling of an incredibly fascinating, important woman. Thank you so much. Well, let's do it again. Thanks for listening to episode 135 of Level with Emily Reese. You can learn more about Larry Goldings at patreon.com slash level. He's got his own Patreon page as well, so be sure you check his out. I'm Emily Reese. Sam Keenan is our producer. Say hi, Sam. Hi. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Level with Emily and learn more about us at levelwithemily.com, made possible by Adam Selvage at Tiki Web Services and composer Brad Gentle. Level with Emily Reese is a production of June Media, Inc. <laughs>